Human beings are hardwired for movement. I think you especially see the truth of that when you think about times of stress, right? When, when you're having conflict with someone or you're, you're feeling frustrated, and what do you need to do, right? You need to get outside, take a walk, clear your head. Or when people are feeling beat down by life, you're feeling ground down at work, and you just need to reconnect with what it means to be human for a little bit. What do you do, right? You put on your hiking boots and you go out to the park and, and you just get some time moving around in nature. And that re- reminds you that you're not just a lawyer, you're not just a realtor, that you're, you're a human being living in the fullness of life. Or I, I really see it when you think about health. health is an area where there is no consensus right now in our society. People can't agree about which diets are better for you than others or whether you should even be dieting at all. Uh, No one agrees about what's the best kind of exercise. Should you be doing CrossFit or is that going to hurt, injure you? And you should be doing Orange Theory or now F45 is a new thing. And no one can agree. Uh, Except that health insurance companies have agreed on one thing, that there's one simple act that makes a variety of positive health outcomes happen, and that's just walking. Just taking steps in your day. Uh, The insurance companies have noticed in all their actuarial tables that people have better health outcomes if they just simply move a little bit. And that's interesting as far as it goes, but I I think it's even more interesting when you think about the ways that God himself has interacted with human beings since the beginning of time. You look at one of the first calls that God made to a person, a man named Abraham, 4,000 years ago, And the main thing God told Abraham to do was to leave his hometown and spend the rest of his life wandering the Mideast as a nomad. And that's what he did. And so Father Abraham, that's that's what we know of him, that he was a a Bedouin, a a wandering um, Arab man back in the the day 4,000 years ago. And God said, you are the one that I'm going to use to, to eventually save the entire world. And the way we marked that was by wandering for his whole life. And then when Abraham's descendants got stuck in slavery in Egypt, the way that God rescued them was he brought them out and he put them back to wandering in the wilderness as as a huge community of people. And even when they did eventually settle in the promised land and they got a capital city, Jerusalem, God still built into the rhythms of his covenant people that three times a year you had to make a trek to someplace different. You had to go somewhere. You you couldn't just stay in your home, in your spot, in your place. You had to keep moving. And then when people got corrupted, when their their religion became a a perversion of itself, what did God do to restore the the core and the heart of his relationship with his people? He he scattered them. He spread them out uh, around uh, the, the area so that they would be forced to become that wandering nomadic people again. And then when God decided to actually enter into the human condition, to become a man himself, you see this trend in his entire life, uh, starting with uh, you know, one of the, his very first public acts in the Gospel of Matthew. And that's what we're going to look at today is Matthew chapter 4 and a few other places. But Matthew 4 uh, picks up in this moment. This is where Jesus is now, he's been born, he's grown up, and this is the moment where he inaugurates his public ministry. This is when he's going to begin the hard task of saving the world. And he's just been baptized in the Jordan by John, and the heavens split open, 
And a dove ascend, uh, descended down and God's voice spoke like a booming megaphone, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. This is what's just happened. And so now what does Jesus do to springboard off of this amazing moment? Here's what happens next. And so then Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness by himself to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting and wandering for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That violates every principle of a good PR campaign. If you know that God's gonna tell the world that you're his guy, you don't then immediately go off by yourself and wander around in the wilderness for 40 days. And theologians look at this and they say, oh, it's because uh, he was mirroring and redeeming the, the same wandering in the wilderness that the Israelites did, where they wandered for 40 years uh, and, and were messing up and, and getting tempted and, and blowing it all along the way. And now Jesus wanders in the wilderness for 40 days and he gets tempted, but he doesn't mess it up. He's redeeming their journey. And I think that's true as far as it goes, but it still begs the question of why did God think it was important for his people, the Israelites, to wander for 40 years? What is it about this wandering that is essential to the condition of what God wants his people to do and what God himself does when he becomes a person? And this isn't just when he started his ministry. In fact, if you jump ahead, uh, this is what Jesus did the entire time he was active, was that he walked everywhere. He went throughout Galilee, teaching in all the different synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, an even bigger region, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them all. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan, they all followed him everywhere he went. God could have lived the human condition any way he chose, and yet he chose to wander. Jesus himself said that a fox has a den to sleep in at night, that a bird builds a nest to be its home, but the Son of Man has no consistent place to lay his head. He's on a journey. And that journey eventually led him to a cross where he was tortured to death. And three days later, he rose again from the dead. And this resurrection miracle was the crowning moment of God's intersection with humanity. And do you know what the first thing Jesus did was after he was resurrected from the dead? He went for a walk. I didn't even realize that until I was studying for this this week. So now that same day, that same day being Easter Sunday, the verse that's just been before this is when the angels tell the ladies at the empty tomb that he's not here, Jesus is gone, and they don't know where he is, here's where he is. That same day, two of his disciples were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and he walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. See, this is what Jesus, the God-man, does when he lives in our condition. He walks, he travels, he meanders. He goes seven miles with his disciples, talking with them and engaging with them the whole way because this is what's important to him about the human way of being. And what's so fascinating is that when God wants to be in relationship with us, the way he does that is by inviting us to wander alongside of him. 
If we go back to Matthew 4, I want to call out this moment where Jesus is beginning to recruit people for this movement. Christianity is called a movement for a reason. And he's recruiting people, but look at, look at how he recruits. So this is back in Matthew 4. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, and they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. And there's this fascinating thing to reflect on this moment, that there is one very obvious question that none of those four men asked when Jesus invited them to follow him. You notice that? If I were to come to any one of you and I were to say to you, hey, follow me, you would have one thing and one thing alone that you would want to know before you took a single step, right? Where? We don't go where we don't know what people are wanting to do. We don't trust people without evidence and without some sort of a picture of where they're trying to take us. And that's, that's everything. That's when you look at the, the traditional understanding of pilgrimage and sacred journey, that it's always built around this destination, this place where you're going to go. And so you're going to, you know, you're going to go to Rome, you're going to go to Jerusalem, you're going to go to a holy place, and that's what's going to work. Or maybe uh, even in, in um, more mundane terms, like in business world, leaders, right? Like all of, the, all of the teaching, all of the books say that if you're a leader and you want someone to follow you, you have to paint a clear picture of where you're going to take them. Because people won't follow if they don't know where you're going. And it's on that point and, and that point right there that I think there is such a distinction between the Christian version of pilgrimage and what the rest of the world understands as a meaningful journey. See, for, for most ways of life, most ways of being, the place is the important thing to understand about where a journey is going. When you're talking about a journey, where is it going? That's the most important thing. For a Christian pilgrimage, the most important thing is who you're going with. In fact, that's how I would encourage us to think about this differently, is that a journey that's primarily about a destination is nothing more than a commute. But a journey with a person, that's when it becomes a pilgrimage. And if you're anything like me, you have experienced actually both of these things. You've had commutes in your life and you've had pilgrimages in your life. I mean, the commute's kind of more obvious, I think. You know, you think about going to work, right? The point is that you have to be at work and you have to be there at a certain time. The point is the destination. And the journey itself is somewhat irrelevant. The method of how you get there doesn't really matter. The only thing that probably matters is how quickly you can get there, right? You want to shave as much time off as possible. You want to be efficient. You want to get it over with, right? And, and, and as commute times have increased uh, in our culture, uh, people have come up with more and more ways to distract themselves from the pain of the journey, right? They, they listen to, to the radio or audiobooks or podcasts, and they do whatever they can uh, so that the journey itself is over with as quickly as possible. But that's not just something obvious like work. I think most of the traveling I've done has fallen in this category of commute. A few times a year, we pack up the kids and we take them home to Colorado because that's where all the grandparents and the relatives are, right? And you would think that that's a vacation, but it's actually a commute because we just want to get to Colorado. That's, that's all that matters. And there's nothing in us that's excited 
to see what's in Kansas along the way. And we'll do whatever we can. You know, we'll, we'll leave like at nine o'clock at night, so maybe the kids will just sleep the whole drive there. But it, it's all about getting there, getting there, getting there, and just minimizing the pain of the journey in whatever way possible. That's a commute, even though it's supposedly a vacation. But we've also experienced pilgrimages. See, a pilgrimage is something like a road trip where you're with a good friend or two. And yes, you've got some place you're going, there is a destination in mind, but, but that, that is secondary in importance to the fact of who you're riding with. And that whatever you're going to do, you know that the journey itself is gonna be a delight because you're with people that you care about and that's where the adventure is going to happen. Or you've experienced a pilgrimage in a small way if you've ever been on a date with someone you really liked. Yes, you're going to a restaurant to have dinner, but the, 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 which restaurant you went to is almost irrelevant compared to the person who you're going with. And if the person that you're with is right, the destination almost doesn't matter. That's a pilgrimage. And for those of us who have been rescued by God, all of our journeys are right because the person who's with us on them is always the right person. See, when God issues his pilgrim call to us, it also comes with a promise. A promise that we don't do it alone, but that there's someone that's always with us. He says this in Jeremiah 29. God says, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. He says it again, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes, and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Seek me, and I will be found by you, says the Lord, because he is the person that is always on the journey with us. And when Jesus says, follow me, that's not an empty gesture. He's saying, I will be with you when you walk, when you move, when you go. And when Jesus conquered death, one of the things he did was not only put death in its place and give us access to eternal life, he then breathed out his spirit to all the world when he ascended into heaven. And he gave it to all of us, you and me. And when we are baptized, that Holy Spirit enters into us. And God in that moment promises each and every one of us, that he will be our journey partner for the rest of our lives. That the highest mountain we can go to, he will be there. The deepest, darkest valley, he will be right there with us, no matter what happens. And in a sense, there is no journey we can take that is a false journey, because no matter where we go, God is with us every step of the way. There's this amazing moment where Jesus turns to his disciples who have been walking with him on this pilgrimage for a year. And he says to them, I'm gonna stay here for a moment. I want you to go out without me. And even though he was not physically with them on the journey, he sent them out two by two, they never left his jurisdiction because the kingdom of God was everywhere that Jesus had been and there was no step they could take that was off of his road, no place that they were that he was not with them in power. 
And just like when Jesus' sandals, every step they took, they created an, an outpost of his kingdom of heaven. When his disciples laced up their pilgrim boots and they walked on that journey, every step kingdom flowers sprang up around them. And that's the same promise he makes today for you and me. That everywhere we go, every step we take, every movement we do, the kingdom is right there around us and God is right there with us. But it does beg the question, if everywhere we go, the kingdom of God is with us, and that means everywhere we stay, the kingdom of God is with us too. And so why don't we just stay right where we are, saved and safe? Why this need to move, to journey, to pilgrimage somewhere else, if we could just sit at home safe and comfortable and let the kingdom of God just be around us right where we are? It's a good question. And it's one that I think has, um, has directed the trend of the last 500 years of Protestant Christianity. You see, Martin Luther actually went on a pilgrimage to Rome. See, he fell into that trap that said that the point of a pilgrimage was a place. And so he thought that if he just went to Rome, all of his questions and doubts would be answered. His relationship with Jesus would be restored in a way that it wasn't, and that he would find some deeper meaning and purpose in Rome that he couldn't find in Wittenberg. And he was disappointed. And it did lead to an important theological revelation, one that has driven us for 500 years, which is that the pilgrimage is not theologically necessary for salvation. You don't need it to be saved. And that's true. But what it's done, though, is it's then given us uh, an excuse, a reason to reject something that God's actually wanted us to have from the moment he first called Abraham to be a wandering nomad. And I think it, it mirrors a trend that, that Western Christianity especially has had for the last 500 years, that, that when there was something good that got, that got messed up or got abused or perverted, we just walked away from it. We said, oh, that, that's not good anymore. We're just not going to do that. Creativity is something that's good that God built into us, that just like he created the world and the universe, we are beings who create, and that's part of how we live out the image of God. And for, for millennia, Western art was driven by great Christian creative artists. But then it got, it got messed up, and some people started creating different kinds of things, and, and Christians kind of went hands off and said, all right, we'll, we'll, let, we'll leave the art to the, to the liberals in Hollywood, uh, to the people that do weird things. Art is now suspect and weird, and we don't do art anymore. Or you think about meditation. That was a, a series we did a, a few months ago, and, and the, the reaction from people was a little mixed. Meditation, that, that sounds Eastern. Like, that's the province of the, of the Buddhists and the Hindus, and... And yet we forget that Christianity is an Eastern religion that just happened to be really popular in the West. And that meditation was something God himself asked us to do, it was something Jesus did. And what's been especially interesting to me on this topic of pilgrimage, on taking a sacred journey, is that when I've brought up what the topic for this week was to people, the most common response I've gotten was an immediate um, kind of reaction against pilgrimage, that's a Muslim thing. Right, that, that's one of the five pillars of Islam. You go, you go to Mecca. 
And because these things have gotten weird or they've gotten tainted or some other group has started to use them, Christians have said, oh, that must not be for us. But the fact is, it is for us. God wandered and he wants and asks his people to wander with him because there is something powerful and joyful in that wandering. Luther is absolutely correct that pilgrimage is not necessary for salvation, but it is essential for transformation. It is the way, the the main way, the best way that we grow and thrive in our natures. If we're called to be transformed into the image of Christ, then pilgrimage and journeying is the method by which we get transformed. What's interesting is that um, even uh, secular sociologists and scientists are, are figuring this out as well, that there's something about journeying beyond the known and, and the safe that is necessary for health. Daniel J. Siegel is a renowned um, researcher and psychologist, and he has this concept uh, in his book, Mindsight, uh, that says that the, the people who are healthiest, the people who thrive in life, who have joy, who are able to adapt uh, to change, who are able to very flexibly navigate the difficulties of life and do it uh, in ways that that empower uh, and energize them, not in ways that tear them down. But there's something very specific uh, uh, that they do, that they've learned how to navigate. He calls it the river of integration. He says that as human beings, we're always being pulled to two different shores, the shore of chaos or the shore of rigidity. And that the healthy people, the joyful people, the growing people are the ones who have learned how to kind of uh, go and sway and live in this river of integration that's between those two banks. And I would say that's not just a psychologically healthy thing, I would say that's a spiritually holy thing. See, I think we get why chaos doesn't work. (laughs) Chaos is dangerous, chaos is is threatening, Uh, uh, chaos leads to, to fear and death. But rigidity is no better for us either. See, we, we, we build our houses and, and we pack ourselves away and, and we make a nice, comfortable, predictable life and we think that's the way to live, but what it ends up happening is that then we can't actually handle the things that life throws at us. And the very rigidity itself, the thing that we thought was comfort and stability, ends up becoming the thing that overwhelms and crushes us. But as Siegel says, and I think as Jesus models, when we, when we move, we, we by, by nature, we leave behind the rigid, and when we don't venture so far into chaos, we, just, we find the way to navigate this fringe area, this place in between rigidity and chaos. And that's what I think the journey, the pilgrimage that Jesus invites us on, that's what it accomplishes in our lives, is it keeps us on the river of integration. Now I say that as someone who is not at all an adventurer. I am a very staid person. I I don't want to do lots of fun things because I have very simple interests. I like to read and I like to watch movies. And we get a weekend and my wife says, hey, what do you wanna do? It's a beautiful day outside. You wanna go for a hike? And I'm like, no. I'd like to just sit and read a book, Yeah. Or there's recently, she said, oh, hey, Doug, we've got a day off together. Uh, we, you know, we could do anything. You want to go check out that new shed aquarium? Nah, not really. We did go. Yeah. 
because ultimately you let the adventurers drive sometimes. But I, I say that to, to point this out, that I, I don't personally feel like I'm an adventurous person. I'm driven to be moving all the time. Like I would actually be sedentary happily uh, as long as I could read a book or watch a movie while I'm doing it. And yet, and yet, every time that my life has hit a dead end, Every time I've been, I've been stuck and trapped uh, in, in stress uh, and, and a way that it seemed like there was, there was not a good option. Voluntarily initiating this movement, this journey, this idea of a pilgrimage has been the thing that got me unstuck and that brought fullness and purpose into my life each and every time. So I was 22, I dropped out of college, and I, I, did, I felt like a loser. Like the, the plan for my life had been derailed. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was just working at a restaurant, biding time. And so I decided to join a missionary organization, and I spent a year traveling the country and the world. And every day, we, we were, stayed at a different host home. We relied on people to let us sleep on their, in their guest rooms and on their couches, and we never slept more than one or two days in a row in any given place. We'd spend the night somewhere, and then the next morning we'd hop in the van and we'd drive to the next place. And we'd just go, 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 never really knowing what we would do and, and, and how we would do it. I was thinking about that this week because of the sermon. My monthly stipend when I did that was $25 a month. And I think back now and I'm like, how did I live? I have no idea uh, how I was able to survive on $25 a month. And yet, I did. And in that year, I grew more in my faith and in my maturity than I had grown in, in the previous four years before that, because I got up and I moved and I did something risky and unknown. Or I even think about five years ago where, where I'd, come to a, I'd come to a crossroads in my ministry uh, career, and my wife and I were, were, were sitting there, we were stuck, we were at a dead end at our church, and we had to decide, you know, was I truly called to be a pastor and, and, and stay in that life, or did I need to just go back to um, the, the kind of work I'd been doing, go back into publishing, go find something else to do? And what we did ultimately to resolve that conundrum was we moved to St. Louis. And when we did it, it, it was... It was a heavy cost. You know, we, we had a house that we had equity in, and, and all of the grandparents were there, and all of the siblings were there, and so all of our, our family and our support system, you know, the babysitting was there. All the friends that we had acquired over the last 10 years were there, and when we came here, we left everything behind. And yet, same thing. By making that choice to move, to journey, we found so much health and growth. Our relationship was forced to grow and change when we weren't just in the same support system we, we'd been in. And we saw how God provides in ways that we would never have had the opportunity to see if we had just stayed where we were safe and where we were comfortable. See, there's something about being in that river. There's something about being on a journey that forces you to evaluate what things you've acquired and you've accumulated and whether you actually need them or not. It's why it's good to you know, move every few years, maybe just even pack up your house, just so you can decide what things do we really need to keep and what can go to savers. Because when you're on the journey, you don't have the luxury of just keeping things with you that you don't need. And when you're on a journey, it starts to reveal to yourself who you really are. You actually get to see your weaknesses in ways that you wouldn't have noticed them before, and you also get to develop strengths that you would never have had the opportunity to discover when we are on that journey with God. 
Because the promise is, you know, so Siegel, you know, he's just noticed that people that, that live in the flexible place, the, the fringes between chaos and rigidity, he's just noticed that they tend to be healthier. He doesn't necessarily know why that is, but I know why that is. It's because the journey is the best place to see God's hand in your life in a way that you won't when you're too rigid or when you're just completely lost in the wilderness. We never have to be lost. We have God with us. Charles Foster, a Christian writer and expert on on pilgrimages, says this. He says, look guys, face it. Everything moves. We move too, either willingly or unwillingly. Go willingly and the business is redemptive and joyful. Go unwillingly and the stream will dash and drown you. The first words of Jesus to his disciples were, follow me. Jesus said some other things too, but as a summary of the four gospels, let's go for a walk together is not bad. This is the invitation that Jesus makes to each and every one of you. He invites you to be on a lifelong trek where he promises that he will be your journey partner going with you, experiencing things with you, showing you things about yourself, growing and using you in ways you would have never dreamed. And if we resist that call, then then we do resign ourselves to a life uh, of stability, but ultimately stagnation and paralysis. And that's not just a call to individuals, that's a call to the community of believers as well. It's the call to a church. Churches aren't meant to be stagnant and stay in the same place. They're meant to keep moving, keep changing, keep growing, keep doing new things. And that's why this church has spent the last three and a half years uh, on this next uh, idea that, that we wanted to keep doing things. We wanted to pursue people like never before. We wanted to, to raise up the next generation of world changers. We wanted our campus to be an inviting place to invite others on the journey. And as we celebrate that today, it's, it's so fitting that we are going to get to plant some of our own kingdom flowers as a symbol of what happens when a church decides to move. The kingdom of God advances, things grow, and they change for the better. So what could that look like for us? What does it look like to reclaim this lost way of pilgrimage? I would submit three things to you as options for you to consider Uh, if you want to try and get uh, more of this sacred journey in your life. And the first is to try something called prayer walking. And I know that probably sounds a little intimidating uh, and pious and scary. It's not. It's really simple. Uh, Chris Pavola, he's a church planning pastor down in the city, used to be on staff here. He he says it's, it's really this easy. You just go for a walk in your neighborhood, in your community, and you have eyes to see, and you just look around at what is around you, and whatever you see, you pray about it. That's it. It doesn't have to be uh, you know, pious. You don't have to pray with the words of prophets and angels. You can just simply see a local business and say, God, I just pray that, that they would thrive and that they would make money for the people that are working there and owning it and that that business would be a, a resource to its community and that the business it does uh, would bring life uh, and, and necessary products to the people that live nearby. That, that's how simple it can be. And if you've got a health uh, reason or where walking is is not really viable for you, it doesn't even have to be the walking part. It just needs to be the the looking out there mindfully and intentionally. As you drive someplace, turn the radio off and and as you drive, look at the things that you're driving past and, and, and submit them to God, pray for them. That's as easy of a start as it can be. Try that once in a while. We do it once a month as staff and it works really well. 
Or maybe if you're looking for a little more of a challenge, there, there is something about that nomadic lifestyle, the getting outside of buildings and four walls and a roof, the things that shut out the vastness of the world. If you can just go somewhere where there's no roof, just the stars overhead, where there's no walls protecting you, just a thin piece of fabric, you'll, you'll get glimpses of how God is moving in your life and in the world around you in a way that you wouldn't get if you were safe at home in your bed. And maybe just even start small. Go in your backyard and just do a little backyard camping. Whatever it takes to just get out uh, of, that, of that safe structure of your home and the life that you've built around yourself. And then maybe, uh, if you're looking for the final step, is maybe just intentionally, willingly, bravely do something unsettling in your life. Right? Work has become a rut and, and routine. You're, you're not challenged. You're not growing. You've just, you've just kind of settled into this rhythm. Maybe that's the, the call where Jesus is beckoning you to do something radically new and different. Maybe just change up how and who you are at work. Bring some energy into that environment. Or maybe just change that work completely. Find a different job, a different way to be and work and do. Or maybe it's a relationship that you need to just bring in some new life and, and it's not enough to just let it coast on the trajectory that it's been on. Maybe you need to actually go on a traditional pilgrimage. Maybe go find the Camino de Santiago de Compostela and, and go and travel through France and Spain and see what happens. Not because at the end of that journey there's the bones of St. James that are going to do anything for you. But because you know that wherever you walk on that path, Christ is going to be doing something in and through you on the journey. Maybe sign up for a mission trip. That's that's such a pilgrim thing to do. It doesn't forward your goals or your career. It's just a moment where you invest your money and your time and your energy and you put yourself out there in a spot and you say, God, use me in a way that you can't predict or expect. And it'll show up something powerful. But one way or another, I promise you this, Jesus is looking at you and he's beckoning you just like he did to the disciples and he's saying, walk with me. Because he wants to go somewhere special with you. He wants to be with you the whole way. And that's a call that, that he would love for you to say yes to in your life, one way or another. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you designed us to be people of movement. And over and over again, you've reinforced that your people will be the wanderers, the nomads, the misfits on this planet. And Lord, when we, when we settle down, when we, when we lock ourselves away, we lose a piece of the joy that you would have for us. We forget the journey that you, in fact, used to grow us, to transform us, to help us live in joy and harmony in that stream between chaos and rigidity. So Lord, right here, right now, have your Holy Spirit in each and every one of us. Spur us on to a next step, whatever that might be. Help us to trust that wherever we go, it doesn't matter because wherever we go, you are with us. Amen. We're celebrating the completion of a three and a half year journey called Next, but we also aren't done. Just because one journey ends, all that means is that the next one begins. And we as a community of faith want to be a place that willingly, bravely takes whatever next step God would put before us. And so I invite you to sing this next song with me and to truly claim it as a call that God is putting on the hearts of the people in this church, in this place. Amen. Let's sing.